And good afternoon. You're listening to the Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. <clears throat> Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's April 27th, 118th day of the 117th day of the year. 248 days remaining to the year's over with. And since you all asked for holidays and observances, it's American Immigration Lawyers Association Day of Action. Autism Supermom Day. Babe Ruth Day. Day of Uprising Against Occupation. It's the founding of the Slovenian Liberation Front. Free Feral Cat Spay Day. Freedom Day in South Africa. <clears throat> Gathering of Nations. That's a Native American um, celebration. Uh, International Donor Conception Awareness Day. International Girls in ICT Day. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Koenig's dog. <coughs> My goodness. Lapu Lapu Day. Love Your Thighs Day. I've seen some thighs I could spend time with. Mantensis Mule Day. Uh, Marine Mammal Rescue Day. Morse Code Day. National Alicia Day. National Devil Dog Day. National Little Pampered Dog Day. National Patricia Day. National Pneumatics Day. National Prime Rib Day. National Support Teen Literature Day. National Teach Children to Save Day. National Tell a Story Day. Order of National Artist. Sierra Leone Independence Day. Take Our Daughters and Sons to Work Day. Togo Independence Day. Woody Woodpecker Day. World Design Day. And World Tapir Day. A bunch of days. Alrighty. Okay. Uh, in 247 A.D., Philip the Arab marched the millennium of Rome for the celebration of the Luda Secularis. 395, Emperor Arcadius marries Elia Eudoxia, daughter of the Frankish general Flavius Belto, becomes one of the most powerful Roman empresses of white antiquity. In 711, the Islamic conquest of Hispania. Moorish troops led by Tariq ibn Ziyad landed Gibraltar to begin their invasion of the Iberian Peninsula. 1296 saw the first war of Scottish independence. John Balliol's Scottish army is defeated by an English army commanded by John de Warren, 6th Earl of Surrey, at the Battle of Dunbar. 1509, Pope Julius II places the Italian state of Venice under interdict. God wants you punished, don't you know? <clears throat> 1521, Battle of Mactan. Explorer Ferdinand Magellan is killed by natives in the Philippines led by Chief Lapu Lapu. 1539, official founding of the city of Bogota in Granada. It's called Colombia these days. By Nicholas Fetterman and Sebastian de Belacazar. 1565, 
Cebu was established, becoming the first Spanish settlement in the Philippines. 1595, the relics of St. Sava are incinerated in Belgrade on the Vrakar Plateau by Ottoman Grand Vizier Sinan Pasha. The site of the incineration is now the location of the uh, Church of St. Sava, one of the largest Orthodox churches in the world. 1650, the Battle of Carbisdale, Royalist army from Orkney invades mainland Scotland, but's defeated by a Covenantier army. 1667. Blind and impoverished, John Milton sells Paradise Lost to a printer for 10 pounds so that it could be entered into the stationer's register. 1805. The First Barbary War. U.S. Marines and Berbers attacked the Tripolitan city of Dima. Uh, that's where you get the shores of Tripoli from the Marines' hymn. 1813. War of 1812, American troops capture York, the capital of Upper Canada, and the Battle of York. Uh, oh, I just got some sad news. Jerry Springer, legendary talk show host, dead at 79. Eighteen sixty-one. President uh, Lincoln suspends the writ of habeas corpus. 1906, State Duma of the Russian Empire meets for the first time. 1909, Sultan of Ottoman Empire, Abdul Hamid II's overthrown, succeeded by his brother, Mehmed V. 1911, following the resignation and death of William Fryer, compromises reached to rotate the office of President Pro Tem in the uh, U.S. Senate. 1911, saw the second Canton Uprising take place in Guangzhou, Qing, uh, China, but was suppressed. 1927, Carabineros de Chile, the Chilean National Police Force and Gendarme uh, are created. 1936, United Auto Workers gains autonomy from the American Federation of Labor. On this day in 1941, during World War II, German troops enter Athens. 1945, the last German formation withdraws from Finland to Norway. The Lapland War, and thus World War II in Finland, comes to an end in the raising of the flag on the three-country uh, cairn photograph is taken. 1945, World War II, also the Mussolini being arrested by Italian partisans in Dongo while attempting to escape disguised as a German soldier. He was recognized, I understand, by his boots, which were not the type of boots you would have found on a German soldier. 1953, Operation Moolah offers $50,000 meaning to pilot it affects with a fully mission-capable Mikoyan girl. <coughs> Excuse me. Being 15 to uh, South Korea. The first pilot would get um, $100,000. 1967, Expo 67 officially opens in Montreal, Quebec, Canada with a large opening ceremony broadcast around the world. <coughs> well... Okay, now that my sneezing attack has stopped, let's see if we can get through this. 1976, 37 people killed on American Airlines Flight 625 crashes at the Sierra Lee King Airport in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. 1978, John Ehrlichman, 
Former aide to President Nixon's release from Federal Correctional Institution Safford in Arizona to serving 18 months for Watergate-related crimes. Also in 78, the Sour Revolution begins in Afghanistan. Ends the next morning with the murder of Afghan President Mohammad Daoud Khan and the establishment of the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. When they put Democrat in the name, it's communist uh, leaning. All right. 1978 also saw the Willow Island disaster. Deadliest construction accident in U.S. history. 51 construction workers are killed when a cooling tower under construction collapses at the Pleasance Power Station in Willow Island, West Virginia. 1981, Xerox Park, P-A-R-C, introduces the computer mouse. 1986, the city of Pripyat and the surrounding areas are evacuated due to the Chernobyl disaster. 1987, Department of Justice bars Austrian President Kurt Waldheim and his wife Elizabeth had also been a Nazi from entering the U.S. They charged the dated in a deportation execution of thousands of Jews and others as a German army officer during World War II. 1989, April 27th demonstrations, student-led protests responding to the April 26th editorial during the Tiananmen Square protest of 89. 1992, the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia, comprising Serbia and Montenegro, was proclaimed. 1992, Betty Boothroyd becomes the first woman to be elected Speaker of the British House of Commons in its 730-year history. Also in 92, the Russian Federation and 12 other former Soviet republics become members of the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. 93, most of the Zambia national football team lose their lives in a plane crash off Libreville, Gabon, en route to Dakar, Senegal, to play a 1994 FIFA World Cup qualifying match against Senegal. 1994, South African general election, first democratic general election in South Africa on which black citizens could vote. The interim constitution comes into force on this day as well. 2005, Airbus A380 aircraft has its maiden test flight. 2006, construction begins on the Freedom Tower, later renamed World Trade Center in New York City. Uh, 2007, Estonian authorities removed the bronze soldier of Soviet Red Army War Memorial in Tallinn and amid political controversy with Russia. 2007, uh, Israeli archaeologists discovered the tomb of Herod the Great south of Jerusalem. 2011, the 2011 super outbreak devastates parts of the southeastern U.S., especially the states of Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Tennessee. 205 tornadoes touched down on April 27th alone, killing more than 300 and injuring hundreds more. In 2012, at least four explosions hit the Ukrainian city of Napoleon Petrovsk with at least 27 people injured. 2018, uh, Panmunjom Declaration signed between North and South Korea, officially declaring their intentions to end the Korean War. About time. <clears throat> All righty. All that having been said, 
Let us now go to, uh, we were talking about the Serpents of Fire, which deals with uh, German secret weapons and UFOs and what have you. You know, we were talking about the fact that uh, Stalin didn't believe Hitler was dead. And there is evidence that he could well have escaped had he desired. 1948, John Griffiths, an importer and exporter from Uruguay, arrived in Washington, D.C. with information to the effect that Martin Bormann was actually alive and hiding with the help of Nazis in Argentina. And these ex-Nazis, as they were called, were supposedly well-financed in the process of building a fourth rank on the range of the third. Now, Griffiths was said to be opposed to Juan Perón and his regime for their support of certain Nazi exiles. And it, they, from 43 on, it is known that hundreds of millions of dollars uh, of Russian, uh, of Russian, of uh, German uh, assets were transferred to South America, primarily Argentina. Uh, while in Washington, uh, Griffiths met with Justice Robert Jackson of the Supreme Court and was also, uh, also had served at the Nuremberg trials against the Nazis. And Griffiths presented his evidence to Jackson, and Jackson was impressed enough to take the case to President Truman. Truman, after getting the informa information, um, dispatched an FBI agent to Argentina to make an investigation. The result, of course, was inconclusive, as you might guess. 1968, the Police Gazette published an article with the sensational title, Hitler is Alive and Hiding in Argentina. This story, written by George McGrath, talked about a Hitler escape by air from Berlin to a waiting submarine flotilla. And the article stated that during the voyage, Eva Braun died of a brain hemorrhage and her body was buried at sea. The article states that Hitler landed from his submarine at Bahia Honda in Colombia on the morning of July 19, 1945. Four Colombians and two German agents met him. With Hitler were five other individuals. The agents meeting Hitler's party had horses and a truck waiting. One of the Colombian informants contributing to the article told of how he was approached by agents asked to select a safe harbor in which Hitler could land. Now, the, the informant had had dealings with the Nazis and was a friend of Hitler's, and he recommended the Gohera Coast at the Bahia Honda. Agents were handpicked for their trustworthiness. The rangers were made to receive the Hitler party. And after the Hitler group disembarked from the submarine, they and their consorts traveled by... Um, horseback through the jungle. After six days of traveling at night only, they arrived at La Loma, where a landing strip was prepared, and waiting were true light planes to take them to a pre-prepared ranch hideout. Now, the informant was told Hitler decided against the pre-arranged hideout and would go instead to another hideout his personal agents had selected. And it was believed that Hitler's party had a suitcase with three million in U.S. dollars in various denominations. Hitler and his party people supposedly boarded those two planes and took off, and nobody seemed to know where they were going. Now, Tristan Jones, sailor and author, is a man very familiar with South America. 
That was many sailing records. One of the few people in history to sail through the perilous Mato Grosso jungle swamp. In his um, book, Incredible Voyage, he gives us a glimpse of what a Hitler hideout might look like. He reported he was sailing on a remote lake in Bolivia when he came on a yachting club. It has been at the pier by members of the club, all Germans, who welcomed him. It was uh, certainly an odd sight, he said. Around the perimeter of the club building was a chain-link fence with uh, six strands of barbed wire. Now, a chain-link fence is a common enough sight in other parts of the world, but uh, in South America it was very unusual. And patrolling the fence were armed guards with paramilitary uniforms, German shepherd dogs. And this was, uh, you know, Jones had been a Royal Navy veteran who served in World War II, so this was certainly a disturbing sight. And he described a particularly nasty German among the group who recalled the sinking of a ship Jones had served on in '44. The German himself had been in the Navy at the same time. And the picture of this uh, remote outpost of diehard Nazis is one that raises a lot of questions and still no answers. Would such precautions as barbed wire and armed guards and dogs be absolutely necessary for a yachting club in a hidden area of Bolivia? One thing is certain, though, this is a, a club from which Adolf Hitler would not be refused membership if he wanted to join. Now, you might think this was a romantic sailing story told by the sailor with a lot of imagination, but the concept of remote ranches owned by Nazi exiles is actually true. I just last Farago wrote about one such ranch located south of Santiago, Chile. It was called Colonia Dignidad. It's a weird encampment that is home to a religious sect that combines Nazism and voodoo. Similar to Jonestown in Guyana, and its infamous cult leader Jim Jones, who uh, lived near Mato Grosso prior to starting Jonestown. Um, well, Mato Grosso is a very strange area. There was, uh, when I was in South America, I met an individual who, um, at the officers' club, no less, he had been uh, exploring. Um, the more, uh, shall we say, remote areas of South America, including the Mato Grosso. And he said uh, some friends of his had found the bones of dinosaurs. Now, that's no big deal. The bones of dinosaurs are found here in the U.S. He said the thing was their investigation revealed the dinosaur, those bones were less than three years old. Now, if that was true, that means there were dinosaurs wandering around in about 1973. And if there could be dinosaurs wandering through the jungles of South America, and one thing about being in the jungle, if you've never been there, somebody can be standing two feet from you and you can't see them. That's how thick the undergrowth is. Uh, so... If dinosaurs could survive in the jungle, so could die-herd Nazis, I guess. You know, uh, South America is actually dotted by various remote properties owned by very wealthy Germans. And many of the owners had intimate wartime dealings with Hitler. 
Some arms manufacturers to whom Hitler had given preferential tax treatment during the war. And uh, these estancias, as they're called, or the isolated ra uh, ranches, were also said to be centers for occultism and spy work. Now, Nazis had some strange belief systems. Um, and it seems to fit into a historical continuum that stretched back, in, back into antiquity. One term for this ancient occult thread is Saturnism, which worships power in a reverse tree of life. And one of the earliest written references to a German occult power resurgence was of course, found in the work of Nostradamus. Born December 14, 1503, at St. Remy in Provence, France, he, uh, Nostradamus was employed by Henry II and his wife, the infamous Catherine de Medici. He became famous throughout France as a seer and a prophet. He died in 1566, and his accuracy at prophecy was amazing, and his work has stood the test of time. And it's said that coming events cast their shadows before him. And if this is true, then Nostradamus was certainly adept at reading these shadows. In fact, he predicted World War II. And referring to Britain, he said, those in the Isles a long time besieged will take vigorous strength against their enemies. And because of the Germans, they and their neighbors around them will be in wars for control of the clouds. The armies will fight for a long time. Now, remember, this was... What, uh, almost 500 years ago? In Prophecy's Own World Events by Nostradamus, translator and interpreter Stuart Robb says that Nostradamus actually predicted the Maginot Line would fail to keep the Germans at bay. And this was brought out two years before the war by a French scholar named Frontbrun. He wrote a book that dealt with Nostradamus' work mentioned the Maginot Line would fail according to Nostradamus. Of course, military experts disbelieved him. Well, in June of 1940, the military and the French uh, authorities learned that Nostradamus knew what he was talking about. The Germans uh, breached the Maginot Line. Now, if somebody almost 500 years before could determine what's going to happen. Uh, why could nobody at the time? It's kind of like today's mainstream media. They get these cockamamie ideas and everybody swears, oh, it must be true because they said so. You know, when he talked about the war, Nostradamus uh, predicted the periscope called it the eye of the sea. He predicted submarine warfare. And there are two prophecies regarding Hitler that um, you might ought to keep in mind. It says, animals ferocious with hunger to swim rivers, the greater part of the camp will be against Hitler, have the great man carried in an iron cage when the German child watches the Rhine. And when there is iron and a letter enclosed in a fish, he will make war will go out from it and have his fleet well rowed through the sea appearing near the Latin land where the iron cage is thought to be the submarine 
the uh, the German children of the the teenagers, the the Volkstrom, the People's Militia, defending Germany in the closing days of the war. And the iron and a letter enclosed in a fish seems to also refer to submarines. Um, and the Latin land, of course, could be nothing other than South America. According to Stuart Robb in um, Prophecies on World Events by Nostradamus, Spiro Braden, a former U.S. ambassador to Argentina, sent intelligence operatives to investigate reports Hitler landed in the San Clemente del Tuya region. They met armed resistance by Germans with automatic weapons were driven out at gunpoint. In uh, another situation where FBI agents were investigating an encampment surrounded with barbed wire, German guards with machine guns forced the FBI men to beat a hasty retreat. You know, it's strange that people have a difficulty accepting the concept that they wanted to escape to the mountains and paint pictures and drink wine and listen to classical music. Even though he'd lived in a lavish mountain retreat during the war and done those same things there, uh, to even consider this point of view is uh, insanity, according to many folks, and yet there's a large body of historical evidence to support this position. It might be far more useful to show that Hitler had pursuits that were non-military, non-violent, which he would have enjoyed in exile. He spoke on many occasions of retiring and living quietly. So you have to ask yourself, what would a prolonged hidden exile for Hitler have been like? Well, with over $800 million removed from Germany before the wars ended, now that was $800 million at the time. It's many times that now. Money would have been no object for Hitler during exile. And this would have been no small inducement for almost anyone alive. And he did have hobbies and enjoyments. Loved architecture, enjoyed designing buildings, appreciated art, was an avid music buff. And he had lived through one defeat of Germany in World War I, and contrary to popular opinion, he realized that defeat in war was not necessarily the end of everything. Percy Schramm reported that he made the comment um, that the burden and responsibility lay with the leadership. As long as there were still a thousand people in the country and let it go to prison for the sake of an idea, the cause wasn't lost. It's only lost, he said, when the last man comes to doubt. And as long as there's one strong-hearted man to hold up the banner, nothing has been lost. If the German people are not prepared to give everything for the sake of their self-preservation, let them disappear. And let's keep in mind, he had just acquired a new wife, Eva Braun. Young and attractive. Now, even though there are... Uh, reports that she died en route to South America of a brain aneurysm. Uh, there are those that also say that she survived to live with him in exile. If, in fact, he was a mad, stubborn, diehard individual, as some maintained, why should he kill himself when he could keep fighting from abroad? If he was as obstinate as the Allies reported, then he probably would have retreated for a few years to fight another day. 1918, after Germany's fall in World War I, he started his party from scratch with no millions of dollars, no loyal legions, no submarines, no secret weapons, no safe retreat to go to. 
And what would he marry just before supposed suicide? Most men wouldn't bother with such trivial things if they're on the verge of self-destruction. So for the, this and many other reasons, the, the official Hitler legend just doesn't make sense. More likely, he felt he was owed a pension from the government of Germany. And it's strange to think in proletarian terms about a person as infamous as Hitler, but a lot of evidence points to this possibility. Suppose he really did wish to commit suicide. He could always make an attempt at escape. If it failed, he could perform that act at any time. After all, Himmler managed to kill himself in Allied custody, as did Goering. Another popular scenario suggests Hitler was despondent on the verge of suicide. If this was true, his trusted aide, seeing their leader in this mood, could have decided to slip him a dose of sleeping medication or in his tea. Once asleep, they could easily wrap him in a blanket, carry him to the waiting bulletproof Mercedes limousine that uh, Hitler had given Donuts, who incidentally happened to be at the bunker about that time. Hitler, Braun, and Donitz, along with aides and selected friends, could have fled to Flensburg, where Donitz was headquartered. Then they were put, could be put aboard the waiting submarines, finally departing their ruined country. And while you think this sounds fantastic, remember, truth is quite often stranger than fiction. And Hannah Reich, his personal pilot, um, landed and took off from a main avenue in Berlin shortly before the Russians overran the city. You know, some Germans are said to believe Hitler escaped in a flying saucer. More likely, she flew him out of uh, Berlin to the waiting U-977. Now, in viewing the... Uh, what historical so sources have told us about uh, Hitler's death. And you may ask what this has to do with my normal uh, theory about um, discussions about UFOs. There is a lot of evidence that a lot of the unexplained aircraft seen in the skies even today have a German origin. And they had their beginnings during World War II. Um, they found a crash UFO on Spitzenberg Island in the North Sea. And supposedly, that the Italians found it and gave it to the Germans because they couldn't figure out what to do with it. Now, most writers who write about Hitler's death have as their starting point the descriptions by Nazis who were present in the bunker at the time of um, his supposed death. And in view of the fact that many of these Nazi sources contradict each other, you wonder why or how a researcher could place a great deal of faith in their stories. And in works that are packed with catalogs um, of heinous crimes committed by the Nazis, the writers of these books act as if the Nazi tailspinners were incapable of telling a lie. 140 liters of gasoline when the city is being pounded into rubble, is available to set fire to Hitler's body. I don't think so. In his book, The Bunker, James P. O'Donnell relates that out of 250 potential witnesses, he communicated with 100 and interviewed at length about 50. 
and he noted he suspected several witnesses were lying. Now, he chose to include certain accounts and omit others in Canugas Ryan's uh, The Last Battle, a comprehensive work dealing with the Battle of Berlin. Ryan devotes over 500 pages to the taking of Berlin. But less than five pages revolve around the death of Hitler. A later investigation regarding the man who was central to the whole affair. Ryan just barely touches on his final phase of the war. Unlike Hugh Trevor Roper in the last days of Hitler, who devotes 300 pages to it. So if a casual leader just skims through Ryan's book, they might believe they have the whole story on Hitler's death, even though that's not the case. And no other author I am, whose work I have reviewed talks about Operation Land of Fire or any of the other famous uh, facets of that time period. You know, a comprehensive treatment of... Um, Everything that was involved in the supposed death of, of Hitler would require thousands of pages. And many of the existing exhaustive works have been colored by politics or intelligence concerns. And certain facts have been routinely excluded from summaries. And the fact that these many accounts contradict each other, I think, speaks volumes. For example, one of the most important aspects of Hitler's death is the shot by which he supposedly killed himself. In reviewing what the major authorities have said, it's apparent because of the differences in the accounts and none of them really knew what happened. Trevor Roper claims a single shot was heard, but according to O'Donnell in the book The Bunker, nobody heard the shot at all. According to John Tolan, the shot was heard by Borman, Axman, and others in a distant conference room, and they came running. But according to Robert Payne, nothing was heard by the aide standing right outside the door. That was Heinz Ling. Also keep in mind that the skull fragment that the Russians have had on display since World War II turned out to be the, when DNA was uh, examined, turned out to be a, uh, the skull belonging to a 40-year-old woman. It wasn't Hitler's at all. Now, either a shot was heard or it wasn't heard. I don't think it was. Trevor Roper cites no sources to back up his conclusion a shot was heard. And a murder trial with no weapon or no body, it being of extreme importance to determine whether an actual shot was ever heard. And so far, it's not been conclusively determined that a shot was ever fired in Hitler's bunker. And as important as this question is, it's even more important is the authorities won't come out and admit they're not sure whether a shot was heard or not. This shows that their conclusion that Hitler killed himself was actually drawn up in advance. And that's the real reason there's so much confusion about Hitler's reported demise. Now, several years ago, articles appeared in major newspapers to the effect that the Russians had determined that Hitler hadn't shot himself but had perished by self-administering cyanide poisoning. This, of course, adds to the continuing um, litany of lies spewed out by the Russians. It would have been impossible to make this determination if the Russians had actually destroyed any remains of his body as they said they did. And it's been noted by others it was an attempt to show Hitler was a coward. 
Unfortunately, the military record in World War I disproves those allegations, as do his aggressive moves as a military commander in World War II. Now, there were actually only two phases of investigation into Hitler's death. The Russian Inquiry and the British Inquiry, which is read by Tre Hugh Trevor Roper. The Russian Inquiry was the only one with a real chance of success, and the forensic detective will tell you it's of prime importance to examine the scene while the evidence is fresh and undisturbed. And of the Russian investigation, Hugh Trevor Roper said it was a very sloppy investigation as much important evidence was removed. At the same time, important items such as Hitler's personal diary weren't even noticed and were left lying around untouched for months. Important witnesses were spirited away to prison camps deep inside Russia, effectively silencing them. The commanders of the Red Army in Berlin were under orders to keep quiet about Hitler, the Hitler investigation. Donald McHale writes in Hitler, the survival myth that the gag order issued from Moscow forbid Russian troops from discussing anything that might have seen in the Fuhrer bunker. Even Pravda speculated Hitler might have fled noted that the indescribable confusion reigned at the bunker. As a matter of record, the Russians refused to cooperate with Hugh Trevor Roper's investigation. So it should be clear that his investigation could in no way have been conclusive or complete, and it wouldn't have stood up in any court. And Trevor Roper himself stated the Russian effort wasn't handled properly. So for that standpoint, neither investigation can be relied on. Now, while Trevor Roper's scholarship is accurate as far as it goes, it simply doesn't go far enough. Given the political situation in 1945, he wasn't able to provide the whole picture regarding the possibility of a Hitler escape. And even if he'd been able to present the more flexible view of Hitler's fate, he would, certainly would not have been applauded for the effort. Nevertheless, given what we now know about Operation Land of Fire and Hitler's early interest in South America, it's simply naive to believe he had no other recourse than suicide. Especially when it came to light that surrounding his bunker were miles upon miles of tunnels that no one knew about. There was said to even be a train that could have taken him outside the city. When considering his situation in the bunker, most normal people might expect him to have chose suicide rather than face a hostile world. But let's face it, folks, he was anything but normal. And as fanatical as he was, it's crazy to assume he would have been noble enough to discreetly exit this world by his own hand. It's far more likely this type of personality would cash in while in exile to enjoy his 800 or more millions of dollars, his young wife, his hobbies, and the adoration of age and wealthy sympathizers around the globe. And he also believed eventually there'd be a, a breakdown in uh, relations between the Allies. And he might have wished to live, see such an event take place. McHale quotes Hitler saying, the conflict between the Russia and the West has to come. And when it comes, I must be allowed to lead the German people to help them rise from defeat, to lead them to final victory. Germany can hope for the future only if the world believes I'm dead. So right there you've got him basically uh, revealing what he planned to do. 
The main impression you get from studying the research material on Hitler's death is one of confusion and uncertainty. Contradictions in the testimony of witnesses were reported by the Russians when they broke their official silence in late May of 45. We reported a team of Soviet detectives had concluded Hitler couldn't have died in the ruins of the Chancellery. They found a secret subterranean shelter 500 meters from the bunker. Germans had hidden in it until May 9th. According to McHale, under cross-examination, those who told of Hitler's death had twisted their stories. None of them had actually seen the Fuhrer end his life. Hitler's chauffeur, Eric Kimka, admitted under questioning he hadn't seen Hitler's body after he had led suicide. He had only seen two feet protruding from under a blanket. And let's face it, folks, at the close of the war, Berlin was littered with bodies by the thousands. The chance of investigators finding one particular corpse was absolutely zero. And as stated earlier, he had several doubles. Pauline Kohler describes her use in her essay in Eyewitness Hitler, edited by Alan Churchill. Writing during the war, she said there were three Hitler doubles. No one but the Gestapo who found them knew their names. At close quarters, it was easy to tell them apart, but when they were dressed like him and touched up by makeup experts, it's impossible to tell them from the Fuhrer at 20 yards distance. And only one of them had a voice like Hitler, and he was trained to make short speeches in the Hitler's stead and on unimportant occasions. Chief task for the doubles is to stand in for the Fuhrer for street processions, military reviews, or similar occasions that doesn't call for speech-making, but on which the danger of assassination is present. And whether Hitler was actually himself when he said farewell to the others at the bunker is also questionable. McHale notes a report by Hungarian author Ladislas uh, Zabo, which one of Hitler's doubles was prepared by surgery and drugs to act as Hitler's stand-in for his suicide. In support of his tale, Zabo noted that Hitler had said goodbye to a group of women during the final hours in the bunker. At the farewell, though, the Fuhrer said almost nothing, barely moved, in fact, had only shaken hands with his guest. So the question became, was that Adolf Hitler one of his doubles? Changed into a semi-paralytic by Stumfigger's operation. One of the women asserted the, uh, that later said with certainty she had seen Hitler, but he had changed a great deal. So, Zabo, among others, believed that after signing his last will and testament, Hitler, the real Hitler, abandoned the bunker. And shortly before Berlin fell, Hitler's people were urging him to withdraw to a safer area. According to standard accounts, Hitler refused these requests. And on April 29th, uh, pilot Hannah Reich boarded her airplane alone and fled from Berlin. Shortly after that, the other aides departed. But as we've noted, Hitler had a great interest in South America. In Albert Speer's Spandau, The Secret Diaries, Speer shows that Hitler is becoming weary of the cold weather and could no longer stand the snow. He gives the most revealing glimpse of Hitler during earlier years of the war. And Speer began by observing that for the rest of his life, wherever I go, people won't ask me about me, they'll ask about Hitler. And what would I apply? I saw Hitler in the moments of triumph and moments of despondency in his headquarters and stooped over a drawing board in, in Montmartre in Paris and deep underground in the bunker. It's probably during the second half of November 1942 when batters in Stalingrad were going badly and viewed the depressing news Hitler left his East Prussian headquarters and sought refuge at Obersalzburg. 
Dr. Morell had urged him, as he often did, to take a few days rest. Surprisingly, this time Hitler did. He had his uh, adjutant telephone Spears' office and ask him to come to Birch's garden, to Berghoff. He had to get his own cronies together. Their familiar faces and jokes would free him from his gloomy moods. Well, Hitler made it clear he wanted to go to a land where there was no snow. And by 44, early 45, Hitler was, of course, losing patience with the war. And you should also remember Albert Speer had plans to escape, according to his diary. He and a friend had a long-range aircraft completely stocked with food and supplies and planning a flight to Greenland. Cornelius Ryan's last battle, it was discussed that the Russians found a jawbone of Hitler with teeth intact, and from drawings made by Hitler's dentist, a positive identification was made. Of course, Trevor Roper said that neither the bones nor the bodies were ever recovered. Toland reported that the Russians claimed to have found Hitler's skull, which they later conveniently destroyed. They also said the Russians claimed Hitler didn't shoot himself, but must have died by poisoning. Well, if no bullet hole was found in his skull, this would account for the fact nobody heard a shot. But then he notes that none of the witnesses noticed signs of cyanide poisoning, such as the bluing of the lips on Hitler's body. And one cyanide capsule was found, which would account only for the death of Eva Braun. In the book The Bunker by O'Donnell, it was claimed the Russians found in Hitler's charred remains a dental plate, which his dentist identified from a group of others as Hitler's, which supposedly proved the body was Hitler's. And shortly after that, this unfortunate dentist was taken to a gulag Russian prison camp as a reward for his help. Now, everybody would have loved to have seen Hitler's dental plate, jawbone, skull, but the Russians claimed to have destroyed the evidence, so all we really have to go on is the word of a handful of Nazis who probably didn't even know what had happened themselves. Those privy to the truth had fled Germany for the Latin land or some other safer climb. So most German citizens were convinced that the Fuhrer had, in fact, escaped the Russian onslaught. When you examine the four main works... Toland, O'Donnell, Trevor Roper, and Ryan, you find four different accounts of Hitler's death. The question's further complicated by various newspapers and magazine reports that later said that he had survived the war. McHale wrote that one eyewitness saw a black armored Mercedes leave the bunker a few days before the end. And that would explain why Hitler was so concerned about Donitz's safety toward the end of the war. In fact, Donitz was given a black armored Mercedes as a gift from Hitler. And this dovetails with Donitz widely reported, quote, to the effect the German Navy was proud under Shangri-La retreat it had constructed for Hitler in a distant part of the world. He said this retreat was an impregnable fortress. McHale, writing in his book Hitler, the Survival Myth, gave a glimpse of what Dwight Eisenhower thought of the idea of a Hitler escape and in particular, the Police Gazette material found on the subject. When he was asked point blank if the magazine had a well-founded viewpoint, Eisenhower replied, I can't disprove any of the facts in the Police Gazette articles. We've been able to unearth one bit of tangible evidence of Hitler's death. Many people are of the opinion that he did escape from Berlin. 
In the book Strange Happenings by Michael Hervey, um, Hervey briefly touches on Hitler's mysterious death in his chapter entitled Who Really Died in the Funeral Pyre. He declared many Germans and knowledgeable Americans believed Hitler had escaped. He also recounts that on October 17, 1946, Lieutenant Colonel William Heimlich, Chief of U.S. Intelligence in Berlin at the time of the investigation, stated that proof of Hitler's demise is so scant that no insurance company in the world would pay off if somebody tried to cash in a policy on Hitler's life. He finally said, I think Hitler's alive. There's nothing substantiates the claim that he died last year. Hervey also quotes the director of a Paris crematorium, M. Arthur Hubert, uh, Hubert, who, as he discussed, a possible Hitler cremation scenario. He claimed the witnesses who said they saw Hitler's body go up in flames were lying. He said, one, you can't fully burn a body on the ground. Bones and some flesh will remain. Two, in order to burn two bodies, a grid several inches above the ground would be necessary. And three, even though enough material would probably remain to identify him unless other precautions were taken. Four, a wall of or some such enclosure about 15 inches high would have been needed with a gaps at ground level to provide a draft under the bodies resting on the grill. And number five, it'd be necessary to waterproof the walls in the bottom of the trench to prevent flammable chemicals and body fluids from seeping away. Well, May 1st, 1945, according to one report investigated by Allied agents in Spain, a German plane arrived in Barcelona. Hervey stated the plane was supposed to have landed at Rice Field, 80 miles south of Barcelona, on the day that Berlin surrendered. Two passengers got off the plane and kept their faces hidden. A Spanish plane arrived, and the two were given Nazi salutes and whisked away. The Spanish foreign minister saw fit to counter such rumors by denying Hitler was granted refuge in Spain. Robert Waite wrote a book called The Psychopathic God about Hitler and discussed the fear of psychology and death. And he revealed that Hitler had established a pattern of fleeing danger in times of crisis. As a boy, he had run away when the woods where he was playing were set on fire. At the age of 19, after his mother's death, he sought refuge in Vienna after relatives suggested he take up meaningful employment in Germany. When he was accused of desertion from the Austrian army in 1913, he fled to Munich. And after the failure of the Bill Hall push in 1923, when authorities were hunting for him, he hid out in the attic of a co-conspirator. And during the war, he remained hidden away and would almost never appear to the German people in times of defeat, even though Goebbels begged him to make speeches that would lift the German morale. He was too embarrassed to appear after key battles had been lost. So could it be in the last days of the war he once again reverted to his old pattern and sought escape? And if, in fact, he uh, did escape to um, Spain, that would explain a lot. The mystery that surrounds his death will remain a historical enigma, as well as many of the other sordid details of that era, including uh, evidence of collaboration both during and after the war between certain allies and, shall we say, ex-Nazis. And this collaboration mostly involved transnational corporations such as IBM and Standard Oil and GM. And this has all been kept quiet. Former Nazis played a major role in building the military-industrial complex that came to dominate the U.S. and Britain during the post-war era. And the Russians got their fair share of Nazi scientists as well, and a race to the moon ensued, but how real was that race? All we know, for sure, is that British and American companies have come to dominate the industrial sectors that produce armaments and other weapons needed for 
making war, acquiring resources, and controlling economies around the planet. We also know that many Japanese and German corporations still have a global reach and seem to be recovering. Sadly, this globalization process uh, occasionally involves terrorism and the manipulation of the stock market in order to scare populations into fighting needless resource wars. And the media seems to be increasingly controlled and at times seems to engage in baiting the public with crude polemics regarding uh, religion, race, and gender. And while you may think these tactics are new, they're actually quite old. In 9 AD, the German chief Arminius attacked a Roman force of 50,000 men in the Tinoberg Forest. After a fierce battle, all the 50,000 Romans were killed or enslaved. And this military action signaled the end of the Roman economic expansion in Germany. Still, the Vatican has maintained a certain amount of power inside Germany. And many German Catholic priests actually supported Hitler. And the Vatican's rumored to have helped many Nazis escape through Spain. So, there's nothing new. Everything is same old, same old. After the Viking invasion ended, England emerged from the ravages of the barbarians and became a world power. As the English merchant and naval fleets grew more powerful, the England gained colonies abroad and acquired wealth and a standard of living and culture previously unknown in the world. Great Britain brought wealth home from China and India and the American colonies and Australia and a number of other places. And throughout the succeeding centuries, it was engaged at various times in wars against Spain and France and Russia and Germany, not to mention American or colonies. Following World War II, though, some experts claim Great Britain had ceased to play a part as a ruler of nations. And although the Germans lost both world wars, the cost of the British Empire was supposedly just as devastating. But were the Germans really responsible for the collapse of the British Empire, just as their ancestors played a key part in the exploration of the, the Roman Empire? What we've seen today, neither the Roman Empire nor the British Empire seems to have died and gone away. And even the Nazi Empire seems to be working, lurking in the shadows. You know, Nazi movements still seem to be thriving and various ex-Nazis are drawing pensions from Uncle Sam. Struggles and fortunes of empires wax and wane over the long course of history and you can't really fathom the meaning of such epic stories. Nor can we fully understand the longevity of systems that allow the struggles of one man to enrich the fortune of another. Well, on that note, we come to the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about more um, bizarre aspects of uh, the end of World War II and and uh, the... Um, why so much evidence points to UFOs having had their beginning, so to speak, uh, during the, the Nazi years. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.